Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Felicia Orth. Uh, I am uh, uh, here on behalf of the chair of the forum committee, Evan Rose. He's floating through the Grand Canyon today. And uh, this morning, um, uh, it's certainly my pleasure to uh, introduce a man who's become a friend. He's poet David Much Lechner. Uh, he's published several books of poetry. He speaks to us uh, every year uh, about what he's studying now. Uh, right now he's studying uh, Panikkar and interfaith communication. Uh, also, David has a book of, uh, a new book of poetry coming out in September. Maybe he'll tell us about that. Please welcome David. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to the Unitarian Church for inviting me. So grateful for to Felicia and Evan and your Pastor John. And I'm, I, I really um, welcome. I'm so happy to have this opportunity to, to, um, to talk. And uh, especially because I consider myself a kind of a perpetual beginner with whatever I'm talking about, especially poetry. I consider myself a, um, an inveterate beginner. Uh, but today I was going to talk about uh, a few interfaith thoughts, um, and my primary source for that is, is uh, the scholar Raymond Panikkar, who I'll, I'll introduce in just a second. Um, but just to get started, um, I feel like it seems that we're in a period right now, politically and culturally, where we see this sense rising up again of my way or the highway, a kind of sense of uh, that I'm right and you're right if you agree with my right. And uh, of course, this has always been there in one form or another, but it seems like we're seeing it more recently. And it kind of goes hand in hand with the sense of, uh, the sense of uh, I lift myself up by my own, my, by my own bootstraps. Um, I don't need community. I, I, do this, I do this thing of life myself. Um, which, of course, I, believe, I think all of us would, would feel is, is not right. That's not quite an accurate picture of the human person. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking of interfaith communication as, as, kind of, as kind of being a form of metonymy. It's kind of, it's kind of, a, a, it's kind of looking at one aspect of human thinking and kind of, and kind of seeing it as metonymous for the whole kind of an example of what's possible for the whole or an ideal for the whole. Um, so, uh, as I'll mention in a minute, I think that ideal is not quixotic, that uh, interfaith communication is, 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 is a hope and a perpetual possibility, and it, it, it gives us an example of how we can communicate on a larger scale with, with, um, with others. So briefly, there are three, sort of broadly speaking, general ways of looking at interfaith communication. And uh, perhaps the first two aren't very viable for us, but I'll go through them anyway. The, uh, the first one is the exclusivist approach to interfaith communication, and that's kind of what I was just mentioning about my way or the highway. It's like the exclusivist is I have the, I have the truth, and whatever you're calling the truth is either an illusion or else even, you know, it could be something worse than an illusion. It could even, I could, you know, ascribe it with the term evil or something. So, so the exclusivist approach is where my, my spirituality or my religion or my sort of uh, position with regard to um, 
with regard to any of those things um, is, is the right one, and that's the truth with a capital T, and yours is, is, isn't the truth. That's exclusivist. Inclusivism is kind of a riff off of, off, off of the exclusivist approach. The inclusivist approach is, uh, is kind of that, yeah, there are, there are little flecks of the truth out there that are, that are real truth. They're a flex, but they kind of just reflect the, the fullness of the truth that's my way, that's my particular faith approach or, or spirituality. So it's inclusivist from the standpoint that, yeah, I can, I can bring those flecks in and show how they're part, of, they're part of my fullness, but they're still just little flecks out there. So that's kind of the, the inclusivist approach. The inclusivist approach is kind of a riff off of, off, off of exclusivism. And the final approach, which is kind of the approach, my approach and Panikkar's approach and the approach of like this ideal of hope is the pluralist approach. And I was just going to mention briefly three possible paradigms for the pluralist approach. Um, the first is just, is just a simple sentence. It's that there's one voice, kind of with a capital V. There's one voice but many ears. Uh, there are many valid hearings of that one voice, um, many, uh, many approaches to that one voice. Uh, the second approach comes from a book I finished recently by uh, Perry Schmidt-Lukel. These are his 2015 Gifford lectures. And in the last chapter, he presents a fascinating idea. Uh, he says that, that uh, spiritual reality is, is fractal in nature. So we see um, sort of spiritual pro proclivities in us, like devotion, prayer, uh, a sense of ethics or law, a sense of, um, of, of the mystical approach of Advaita, which I'll get into in a minute. These, these approaches kind of play out across a panoply of human experience. They're kind of patterned across a panoply of human experience. And they're all valid. They all come from the human person. And that you know, we can see these patternings of, of this reality of our, of our spiritual pro proclivities in a kind of fractal nature um, across humanity, which I thought was a, a fascinating and tantalizing idea um, from Perry Schmidt-Lukel. Um, the other approach uh, that was kind of interesting to me about pluralism is, is John Hicks' approach. Um, I think this book is probably kind of possibly a little bit iconic at this point. God has many names. And John Hick was kind of using a Kantian paradigm it was between uh, noumena and phenomena, saying that, you know, uh, uh, however we constitute spirituality, whether we think of it as a, as a theophany, perhaps, this, this spiritual actual, actualization, we never are at the center of it. We don't understand the, the thing in itself. We don't understand the noumena, but we have numerous phenomenological understandings of that spiritual experience, that noumena, that thing in itself. So all of those, all of those phenomenological experiences are valid. They're all, they're all ways of seeing that that theophany or that noumena, which is uh, in, in a lot of ways greater than, our, than, our, um, than any, any of the finite understandings, although those finite understandings lead back into that. So that's kind of one of John Hick's paradigms for pluralist experience. We have a multitude of valid encounters, valid uh, relationships with that, that experience or that, that spiritual experience or that uh, 
theophany, if you will. So um, just to get back to exclusivism for just a second before I move on, um, I, I think we could sort of say that if, if a faith approach is endemically exclusivist, then it's, it's really not a true faith approach at all because a faith approach lovingly admits uncertainty. It, it lovingly struggles with, uh, with what it does not know, and that becomes really part of the faith approach is that, that sense of being able to freely embrace uncertainty and, and, and not have this sort of like ossified um, rigor that, you know, that I'm right and I know, which you know, kind of man- is, is actually in some ways often a manifestation of fear. So the exclusive approach may not really be a faith approach at all. It may be um, a kind of an artificial thing. But I'm going to get into this whole idea of loving struggle again uh, when I refer to Carl Jaspers, because I think it's very important to Carl Jaspers' concept of possible existence, which I'll explain in a bit. Um, so uh, just to get into Raymond Panikar, just for a second to kind of introduce him. Panikar was a triple PhD. He had, a, he had three PhDs in biology, philosophy, and theology. He died in 2010, and his writings are, are vast and oceanic. He's, uh, Orbis Press is slowly releasing his complete works. So there's been a lot of work recently uh, done on uh, releasing his works on Hinduism. And... Uh, I think Buddhism is coming up, and they're even going to release his, his works on, on sci- his scientific works as well. So I, I find him tremendous. So that's, he's kind of my main man for this talk. Um, so uh, he, you know, he has this wonderful idea. I, I, I began as a Christian, I became a Hindu, then I became a Buddhist. But all along I was sort of a Christian still. So you, know, you can sort of see this pluralism fomenting in, um, in Panikkar's thinking. So the pluralist ideal, and, and kind of my ideal for this talk, really, is that we can love one another to the extent that we can meet in one another the true depth and mystery of divinity or of the spirit. Our neediness finds fulfillment in the other just as the other finds fulfillment in us. And, and this will lead to some iterations of couplets I'm going to read at the end of this uh, talk, some couplets that kind of try to get at this, this, this sense of like, this sense of communication through neediness and this sense of receiving and giving. So I wanted to introduce just two ideas uh, of Raymond Panikkar's that may be useful uh, to, to interfaith communication. And the first idea is a, is, is, comes from a, the Hindu word Advaita, uh, which uh, becomes very important for Panikkar and relates almost, almost as kind of a keystone that kind of relates to everything else. Um, so, so briefly, the, the two elements that sort of constitute thought's quotidian for us are reason and sense experience. That's kind of the way we approach things, or is through reason and sense experience. The problem with that dualism, and, and anybody who's... who's Studied, studied the history of philosophy knows this. This is, this is in some ways one of the problems in the history of philosophy is that, is that when you have this dualism of reason and, and sense experience, one pole tends to get sucked into the other. So if, if reason gets sucked into sense experience, 
you, you kind of wind up with one form or other of materialism and, you, and taken to the extreme, the only things of value are what can be measured. Uh, it, you, you, you reach a kind of like um, pure quantification of reality in some ways when, when reason is purely sucked into sense experience. When the, other, when the opposite thing happens, when sense experience is sucked into reason, you wind up in the history of philosophy with one or another form of philosophical idealism. You're here, you're, you're, you're in, the, in the structures of inner ideation, you're in some kind of platonic construct. Um, and you know, in, in the extreme versions of this, it gets kind of crazy. Um, so so you know, the, this, pull, these, this pull of reason and sense experience um, in philosophy has, has, presented a, has presented a lot of, a lot of problems. Um, so according to Panikkar, though, there's a third eye, a spiritual dimension, integral to the human person. And this spiritual dimension combined with reason and sense experience makes for a kind of epistemological trinity. Our personhood is trinitarian. The third eye, when nurtured, keeps the other two aspects, reason and sense experience, in equipoise. Reason and sense experience are never left behind, but instead they're, they're transformed, or you could even say intensified, through the, through the Advaitic center. Reason and sense experience are, are actually intensified. So Advaitic experience is, is trans-dualistic. It doesn't leave them behind so much as it transforms them. And the, maybe the key word for, for this kind of experience is intuition. Advaitic experience is intuitional. It cuts across realist and idealist understandings. And at the apex of the Paradiso, of Dante's Paradiso, Dante longs to know how the human form fits into this divine circle of the spirit. And in a flash, he sees, but he, cannot, he can't really explain what he sees or what he understands. And I think that's kind of a good example of Advaitic experience. And I was just going to read that, those last few lines of Canto 33 of the Paradiso, just because I thought that was kind of an interesting approach to this third eye or this, this, this intuition, this intuitional presence in us. Eternal light within itself, in its very own color, seemed to me to be painted with our effigy, by which my sight was all absorbed. Like the geometer, who is all intent to square the circle and cannot find for all his thought the principle he needs, such was I at that miraculous sight. I wished to see how our image fitted the circle and how it becomes itself there. But my own feathers were not sufficient for that, except that my mind was struck by a flash in which its desire came. Here my high imagining failed of power, but already my desire and the will were turned like a wheel being moved evenly by the love that moves the sun and other stars. So I, I think that's, a, that's kind of a good, maybe that's a very high-flown, but a very good example of um, Advaitic intuition um, that, that somehow is in between reason and sense experience. Um, the other principle I wanted to mention of Panikkar that I think is important 
is what using Panikkar's neologism is, is the cosmotheandric experience. And let me unfold that, that um, somewhat highfalutin sounding word cosmotheandric. Uh, so con- cosmotheandric has three parts. Cosmo, which leads to cosmos, the totality, cosmos. The, which leads to theos, or in this paper, I'm, or this talk, I'm using spirit. So the, theos, kind of the spiritual side. And then andric, which, which leads to anthropos, or, or human, or the person, the human person. So cosmotheandric, cosmos, spirit, theos, and person, cosmotheandric. So the important thing about the cosmotheandric principle for, for Panikkar is that, that these three realms completely interpenetrate each other. They are, um, uh, in some ways, uh, for Panikkar, inextricable. If you are really seeing into the human person, you see something of cosmos. If you really see into cosmos, you see something of spirit and human person. They are, they are inextricable, and I'm going to get to one of the reasons in just a moment of why... That's so important to us right now, I think, with regard, especially with regard to um, uh, ecological consciousness. So the, 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 the mysterious or difficult part might be the center part, uh, the theos or the, 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 the spirit part. So I just wanted to read a quote from Panikkar that dealt with um, this, this middle part, this divine dimension, um, that I think is really quite wonderful. So Panikkar writes... Man discovers and senses an inbuilt more in his own being, which at once belongs to and transcends his own private being. He discovers another dimension which he cannot manipulate. There is always more than meets the eye, finds the mind, or touches the heart. This ever more, even more than perceiving, understanding, and feeling, stands for the divine dimension. This evermore, even more than perceiving, understanding, and feeling, stands for the divine dimension. So this is the evermore of, of Wordsworth, this, the something evermore about to be. Um, this sense that, uh, um, to kind of seek into Carl Jaspers here, this sense, um, this sense in, in Carl Jaspers, who was a phenomenal odd, ph- phenomenologist and uh, existential philosopher, the sense in Jasper's of um, the limit situation, that we're perpetually coming upon a limit, but we know there's something past that. We're not there. We don't, we, we don't quite know how to get there, but there are these limit situations in our thinking, in our consciousness, and we know, you know, through that, maybe perhaps that Advaitic intuition, we know there's something past that, but we don't, we're not quite there. We don't, you know, we're struggling with that limit situation, but the limit implies a beyondness. Um, so that's, a, that's, a, that's an important uh, principle, and I think it, it relates to this evermore of Panikkar, which, is, which, he, which he equates with the divine dimension. The evermore is the divine dimension for him. So, so the, the idea from uh, Jasper's that I wanted to touch on is, is his idea of possible existence, um, existence with a capital E, and, and in most translations, if not all, it remains E-X-I-S-T-E-N-Z, Existence, possible existence. Um, I'm not going to get into Jasper's ideas of realms of of becoming, which is which has to do with these these areas of uh, consciousness, these circles in consciousness that we move through, and these circles that cut across each other in our consciousness. Um, 
suffice it to say here that, that this idea of existence for Jaspers marks the apex of human consciousness. And as such, it's an ideal. It's a possibility, possible existence, possible existence. Existence, in this sense, for Jaspers, marks that height where everything in cosmos becomes a cipher or symbol for transcendence. In transcendence, nothing is left behind, but everything's an, everything is intensified, so there's this, there's this sort of symbolic intensification of reality through possible existence, through existence with a, a capital E, as Jaspers is, is defining it. So you're starting to get a sense again of Advaitic experience, right? In transcendence, nothing is left behind, but everything is intensified. Existence is the free vision of an ever-expansive totality. And this is, in some way, is the Advaitic will to unity that, is, that I mentioned earlier is free even in uncertainty. It's, it's the, the, the ever-expansive totality that is able to admit uncertainty and able to admit these things like fear and unknowing and is, is able to you know, freely and lovingly you know, embrace these, these parts of ourselves. So possible existence escapes hegemony by, by being able to admit unknowingness. We, ad, we admit unknowingness and reach, out, and reach out to it. We lose things when we hold them too hard. The theophany that I mentioned, the, the spiritual aspect, the theophany, the lived experience of the spirit is always greater than the dogma that seeks to define it. The dogma is at best a doorway back into that lived experience of, of, of the spirit or the theophany, whatever that spiritual encounter is that, that, we, uh, that we have. And, and I wanted to read a quote from Panikkar here that, that I think is quite wonderful and, and, uh, and relates to this, um, dealing with uh, the human person, dealing with the... Uh, uh, we've sort of dealt with the theos side of cosmotheandric, so this is the uh, anthropo, anthropos side. The intellect, has, the intellect has no nature of its own since it has the actual possibility of becoming everything. As intellectual souls, we do not have any fixed nature, nor are we a fixed nature. Our only nature is that we can become everything. So that, in a nutshell, is Advaitic existence to kind of combine Panikkar and, and Carl Jaspers here with a hyphen, Advaitic existence, um, this pure reach and openness. And this idea, by the way, is nothing new. I mean, it's the idea of um, our only nature is that we can become everything. Is, 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 uh, uh, you can find it in Aristotle, and you can find it figured forth in, in his own way in Aquinas. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very classical idea in some ways, uh, although, it's, although it was given new life in, a, in, in the existential period, um, even by people like Sartre. So uh, I wanted to get back to the necessity of the cosmotheandric experience. Why is this important? Um, and uh, uh, so I'm, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from my paper on Panikkar. Um, uh, I've, I've been trying to avoid like just getting into reading here, but uh, the, um, I was going to read a couple of paragraphs, and they dealt with uh, kind of going back to Augustine, this idea of the, the city of God and the city of man. And here again, we have another dualism, don't we? City of God, city of man. And what happens so often is that, is that you know, the city of God winds up becoming platonic and it winds up becoming with these like, eternal ideals and it kind of like 
floats off this way and the city of man becomes the world or becomes things that we're not, you know, as concerned about because we're kind of like, you know, uh, traditional, traditional religion perhaps becomes involved in the, in the city of God, this platonic ideal. So, so these two kind of separate. And of course, you know, when we're looking at cosmotheandric experience of Panikkar, they can't be separated. You can't do that. You have to instead find them to be um, utterly, whatever they, whatever they are, you have to find them utterly together. So the celestial city ascends past the stars into some far nebula, some nebulous other land. Once the, once the celestial city passes from our spiritual imagination, people look more and more toward the terrestrial city in their hopes for fulfillment and happiness. People bank on the terrestrial city as bearing forth a vein of celestial gold. We drain the pond to ravage it of any wealth that might make us happy. The drained pond becomes a potent metaphor for the United States, if not the whole terrestrial realm. The completely predictable result of this ravagement is more unhappiness. The palpable world is emptied, and the celestial gold, the real need of our human hearts and minds, remains an effigy, a mere shimmer of otherness from some elsewhere. The celestial city is not recognized in all the circled, unshared good. So the celestial city before, so like the celestial city before it, the terrestrial city is found wanting. The palpable slips through our fingers with an ease that equals the speed with which the celestial city passed from us. The terrestrial city is found wanting, and with the celestial city long gone from us, we are left with a hollow that goes up and down, goes straight through us. So this is kind of, I, I think, when I look a lot at commercial culture and other things, I feel sort of like this is kind of where we are, actually. Um, this, this, this huge division, and so we're just we're left kind of with, with empty uh, desires. This is kind of where we are. So we've, we've dismantled the original origin, the, re, the original union, rather, between the terrestrial and the celestial city. Uh, we don't understand creation's share in spirituality because we don't understand who we are. So again, that kind of reflects back on, on cosmotheandric thinking. The difficulty is return. We stumble under the heaviness of old wounds. It is through these wounds that we see all potential unification. The wounds become our eyes. So Panikkar writes, the change required is radical. It is less a new policy of man toward nature and more a conversion that recognizes their common destiny. And so you, one starts to see the, uh, the, the vitality of cosmotheandric thinking. We do not stop polluting nature until we recognize that nature comes from the same spiritual energy source as we do. This recognition must be existential, a shock wave running at once through nature and ourselves. And here's a wonderful quote from Panikkar. If the ecological consciousness does not strike deeper roots in something like cosmotheandric spirituality, it will prove to be only a cosmetic change. And this just seems utterly key to who we are right now and who we must become. Uh, and I can't resist in, in getting close to the end of this of, uh, of sort of waxing into theopoetics here because that's always kind of the underpinning of everything I do um, or everything I think about. Um, 
So uh, perhaps more than ever now, we need old Charles Olson's sense of a nation of nothing but poetry, of prime communication inclusive of cosmos. So then a cosmos of nothing but poetry. And um, this is kind of, for me, where theopoetics comes in, for theopoetics is explicitly one with interfaith communication, with what I'm trying to get at here. The loving face-to-face, where the sacred meets the sacred. Through the face-to-face, creation is recovered as the living ground of our company. And I want to end with uh, just these few couplets I was mentioning at the beginning of the talk. Um, And I I mentioned Ishvara in these couplets, and... um, Ishvara is the incarnation of, of Buddha, or, or a Bra- Brahma, rather. I'm, I'm in Hinduism. Ishvara is the incarnation of Brahma, who's the Hindu creator god. And uh, in Brahma, we beautifully and powerfully see that creation is included within the divine. So Ishvara is, is an incarnational presence. Um, and um, I see these couplets as, uh, as, as, again, an ideal, or as a hope, as an aspiration, as a movement in, in a certain direction. Um, but I don't think they're quixotic. I don't think, I don't think this is just uh, this is just a you know a nice poeticism. I think they're they're, they're kind of a reaching towards something. I hope, um, and I'm not interested, as I hope this talk has shown. I'm not interested in um, a polemic phalanx or a, a apologetic front or something. I'm interested in like open openness and listening and and uh, and trying to you know trying to get at you know what this pluralist approach is. Um, so these are the couplets. I love you so completely, I want to be your Ishvara. You love me so completely, you want to be my Jesus. I love you so completely, I increase your Ishvara. You love me so completely, you increase my Jesus. I love you so completely, I want to become through you the whole of creation. You love me so completely, you want to become, through me, the whole world. I love you so completely, you move past name's outline. You love me so completely, I've moved past all single vision. So those are the couplets, and I thank you so much for allowing me to come to speak. And uh, um, I could go on, but I think that's enough. So, uh, thanks so much. So, this is deeply thoughtful, but also abstract. How, How do we talk to regular people about how their lives can be better. That would that would be the, that would be a whole other talk, I think. Um, I, uh, I was I was I was looking um, specifically at a couple ideas from Panikkar, and you know, from a, from a more theoretical standpoint, I think I think again the the keynote for me is to um, at least you know as a as a kind of a beginning point is uh, um, is avoiding. Uh, and, and this is, in some ways, I feel like I'm preaching to the crowd at the Unitarian Church. It's like it's avoiding, um, uh, again, what I was calling um, uh, uh, polemic phalanx, or like going, you know, just trying to go for what your you, what you know, what how what you feel is right. And I feel like uh, it's it's uh, trying to avoid those things, trying to avoid apologetics, and instead 
um, actually listening and actually, um, you know, acquiring a, more of a quality of, uh, of openness and being, um, again, getting back into um, to Jasper's a sense of being able to have a, have a love, loving uncertainty, if that's possible, with things, you know, being able to... And, and I'm not going to give you a whole lot of practical... This is this is like this is like uh, well I'm a, I'm a perpetual beginner but this is kind of like um, offering an, an offering of some underpinnings to the sort of a ground to the whole thing you know um, and I don't even think I mean in some of the books I've read I don't think John Hicks really offers any like I don't recall like really like feet hit the ground kind of practical advice in in a lot of the stuff I've read so. So I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, the actually there's another little thing on um, on theopoetics called Poetic Faith that just came out in December, last December. So that's my first book of prose. So it's the Loon Press, if anybody wanted to look that up. Um, it doesn't include this stuff, but it includes a lot of um, uh, uh, this kind of thinking from the standpoint of, uh, of theopoetics and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, but again, it's like, it's theory. <laughs> it's, uh, it's theory. Um, the image that keeps coming up in my head is the blind man and the elephant um, thing. How is yeah. that? This different from from your approach, or is it similar? I think it's I think it's similar. Um, gosh, I wish I could remember. John Hicks brings that up in his book. Um, uh, I think uh, I think his his like one qualification was that um, yeah was that you know it's like the the, the pluralist approach would be that the different um, the different things that people are, are the different kind of uh, experiences people are having with the element are all, um, are all valid. And, and that, you know, it, you know it's, it's trying to avoid exclusivism. By the way, all of these things get to be kind of slippery because um, uh, I think um, one of the things I was reading in, uh, in the Lukell book was that uh, um, Hinduism is the most pluralist religion, but the problem with that is that, you know, it's like some Hindu scholars say, if we're the most pluralist, then we're the best. Well, or then we, then we have the most valid, you know, understanding of spiritual reality. Well, then now you're suddenly back to, you know, to, to uh, some, it, at best, some sort of form of um, inclusivism. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's tricky stuff. You know, you have to, uh, you know, you, um, uh, you, you know, if you're feeling the elephant's, um, you know, trunk or something, and you say, you know, well, all you know, all of your experiences are valid, but you know, I seem to, I seem to have be at the head of the head of the elephant, you know, which manifests, you know, everything else is sort of streaming off of that. Therefore, I have the, um, I seem to, you know, I seem to have the most, uh, you know, inclusive understanding. Well, then, you know, then you're, you're kind of, you know, suddenly you're not quite where you were, where you were before. other uh, and, i'd have and, to look it up and i don't combine their yeah. because that's what i think you're up you're yeah. saying if i'm getting it right yeah is that you know if we share all our experiences then we have a more a clearer picture of 
yeah. of reality. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. The one voice. Yeah. Back to sort of the practical examples. What it brought up for me was there was an article in the newspaper, I don't know, a month or so ago, about a um, young adult who guy who grew up with a neo-Nazi for a father who was very involved in, in that activity. And I believe he was in Florida, and he went away to school somehow and said... He, he made friends on campus who disagreed with him. And he said, they didn't oppose me. You know, they obviously cared about me, and they talked to me, and they let me do my spiel. And gradually, he shifted away. And I thought, you know, I would never go up to a neo-Nazi and say, hey, you're a nice person, you know, let's, <laughs> let's talk. But in the end, it's... It's that uncertainty or that willingness to um, take a look at it, which which changed his mind, which brought him to a new reality, and and that's yeah. um, what your your um, discussion today brought up for me. I think that's the lesson: is you're not going to change people or shift any consciousness unless you're willing to shift your own. Right. Yeah, that's really good. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, Felicia. Thank you. Thanks everybody for coming. Thank you.